What a great song, huh? And uh, great truths. Comes right out of Numbers chapter 6. Moses is told that Aaron would bless the people with that blessing. And uh, we have pronounced that on ourselves today. The Lord give you peace. And that ties in with our topic today because... We started last week thinking about unity in the body of Christ and its importance, and uh, that peace theme comes in there, and, and what we're thinking about is that you and I have a role in, uh, shall we say, allowing that peace to happen, and that's what I want to think about with you today. So, going back to last week, uh, where we've been, we looked at John uh, 17, the great prayer of Jesus, which I call a mission prayer, and we saw there that unity is the key to mission. Jesus says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, the apostles' message, that all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's direct connection, right, between our practice of unity as disciples and the world being able to understand the message of the gospel, that God has sent his Son into the world to redeem the world. Those two are coordinated. You say, well, God can do whatever he wants. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so if the church isn't united, God can still save people, yes, and thanks be to God he's done that. But the prayer of Jesus is that you and I would participate in that mission in an effective way and and being one together is a significant part of that, okay? And then we noted that the church, and particularly I think the Protestant tradition, has not done very well at living into the unity that Jesus prayed for. So depending how you count it, there's, there's certainly thousands upon thousands of Protestant splits in the 500 years since uh, Luther departed the Roman church. The uh, estimate of 47,000, that's probably high, but it's thousands. And that, that testifies to the difficulty that we have had in practicing unity. <clears throat> so, this is an important issue, and we ought not to be surprised that the New Testament has a fair amount to say about it, especially since Jesus put such an emphasis on it in his prayer. So I want to look now at a section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul focuses uh, on this question very directly. And it's in Romans 14, and actually carries over into chapter 15. We're going to look at the first 12 verses today, and uh, well, well, we'll see where it takes us. Uh, 
It's a challenging text. I found it challenging this week trying to reflect on my own life and how well I <clears throat> follow the counsel of Paul. So, follow along as I read. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servants? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, quotation here from Isaiah, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Well, this is an important section, and its importance to me is highlighted by the fact that it appears in the book of Romans. I mean, for, for many Christians, Romans is the top of the heap in terms of biblical importance, huh? Uh, it was so critical for Luther's whole Reformation, his understanding of the gospel, uh, so this very important book, 16 chapters, two chapters are given over to this problem of the weak and the strong and how they get along together. That's significant. Well, let's, let's understand the problem first, right? The problem of the weak and the strong. Weak and strong comes up in reference to what Paul calls matters of dispute, and that's translated various ways, but the idea is pretty easy to get at, right? Especially with his two examples of, of uh, holy days or of things you can eat or not eat. These are matters of dispute. And as soon as you put it that way, you realize why it's important to Paul. This is what quickly seems to happen in matters of dispute. Pointing, angry words, distance, 
And all of a sudden, sometimes before we're even aware that it's happening to us, the prayer of Jesus that they may be one as the Father and the Son are one together so that the world can know. That has all gone out the window. Because we're in the midst of a dispute, a dispute that we feel strongly about, that we've thought about, we've given consideration. It's not just an offhand, unimportant issue. For one reason or another, these feel like things that are are important to our spiritual lives, right? And, I mean, you may not think of the observation of holy days as all that important. I mean, that's not central to your Christian life, probably. Or what you eat, that's probably not central to your life, but, but it was for people in Paul's days. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't picking fluff stuff that they could just walk past, he obviously knew some issues in the Roman church. And we're not quite clear what was driving it. But but these were issues. And when these things get going, what's the prognosis? Train wreck. Train wreck for the people involved and train wreck for the congregation. And the mission of God, the mission of Jesus, comes up short. All right, well, let's let's go a little bit further into these manners of dispute. How shall we think about them? Well, they're usually matters that are complex. Now, again, you might hear what Paul's talking about, his specific examples, and say that they are not complex. But in Paul's day, let's assume they were complex. So, for example, the issue of food. We know from 1 Corinthians that, that food questions, especially eating meat, came up elsewhere. We know that at least in some situations, the meat-eating issue related to uh, the fact that, that meat sold in the marketplace often had been used as part of a sacrifice made to idols. So that was part of what was going on. Was that the issue in Rome? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't explain They would have understood because it was their issue. But now you see the issue of eating meat is getting wound around issues like idolatry. And idolatry is a pretty significant issue, wouldn't you say? I mean, no idolater, Paul says, has part in the kingdom of God. So, I mean, that that ups the ante on the meat. And the issues that we dispute among ourselves are frequently like that. They're frequently complex. Although in our minds, they may be very simple. That's where it gets tricky. See, it may be be absolutely clear in your mind that any true Christian 
would not vote Democratic. Let's put it out there. That's one of our issues, right? Even though statistics say that about 20% of evangelicals voted Democratic. There are some people just, they're very deeply convinced. Person who left our church said exactly those words to me. I don't see how a Christian can vote Democratic. Now, meat may seem at a distance, friends, but this one's hitting close to home, right? But these are complex issues, although I personally may not think that a certain issue is complex. They almost always are. There are also issues where Scripture is not clear. What, what about the food? Well, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but Paul is saying it's not, not clear here. And most of these issues that we dispute are not clear either. <clears throat> and, whoops, I lost something in my, ah, well, it'll come back at some point. I didn't hit save the last time I revised it. All right, so let's think quickly about these. The problem of food. <clears throat> Here is a young lady who is saying no to a hamburger. No to a hamburger. How is that possible? She's for fruits and vegetables. Well, Paul is talking about a similar situation. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Uh, so you get this weak and the strong. See, for Paul, the idea of strong in regard to faith means that you can adopt a particular position or a particular practice in a faithful way. In other words, you can say, in this case... The strong person says, yeah, I can't figure out how to sort out this whole thing on meat, whether it's clean, whether it's been involved with some kind of idle practice before it hit the market. That's, my that's not my job. And I don't know how to do it. And, and I feel free. Jesus said, Mark chapter 7, all food is clean. So I believe that, and I like hamburgers. Okay? That's what's happening here. And the other person says, no. Maybe they have a background in paganism. And, uh, or may, maybe, they're, maybe they're Jewish background. For one reason or another, they have a problem with the meat. And they say, I, I just don't feel comfortable. I don't want any association with a pagan past. I'm sticking to fruits and vegetables. Okay. Or there's the problem of special days, sacred, holy days. Some people, we don't, again, we don't know the background, but some people obviously were saying we're going to observe certain days 
even though Scripture doesn't require us to do so. Maybe this is Jewish Christians who say, you know, I've got lots of unsaved Jewish family members, and they observe the major feast days of the Jewish calendar, and for their sake, and as part of my connection with the family, I just feel that God wants me to observe these days. Or maybe some other reason, but for whatever reason, they say certain days are holy. And then there's the strong believers in this case. Once again, they feel freedom. They regard every day the same, Paul says. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. I mean, isn't it interesting? Paul doesn't try to straighten out who's right or who's wrong. He just says, work out your own conviction on this. Live in faith before God and don't live somebody else's faith. Live your faith. Now, understand, this this has certain restrictions. This is in the areas where Scripture doesn't speak with any clarity. Paul's not saying it's okay to commit murder because, you know, if you're strong and have faith, you can do it. He's not saying that. This is a restricted area of places where Scripture does not speak clearly, and they're complex, and Paul says, live your faith before God. Now, how are we going to do that? Living out unity... And uh, here's what we've got to think about. This, this is what makes it really hard. Uh, we have strong convictions in many of these areas, at least in, in, in some of the areas. Some of us feel very strong about it, others not as much. How are we going to live together? And here is the problem that Paul's concerned about. It's what I call the judgment game. And that is that the weak and strong together in the same congregation easily fall into a pattern of judging one another. So there's condemnation. This, Paul says, is particularly the temptation of the weaker brother or sister. So in the examples he gives, the one person who says, well, I can't, I can't eat the meat, I'm just off eating the vegetables, the temptation for them is to look at other Christians who are practicing a broader freedom before the Lord and to condemn them, to judge them, to say, how could a, a true Christian do that? And when that happens then, how do the strong feel? Well, they feel like they're getting hammered. But then there's a reverse problem that is characteristic particularly of the strong in regard to the weak. The strong person hears the weak saying, you've got to observe these particular days. Or, you shouldn't be eating that. 
Or you can't vote that way. Here's the problem for the strong. <laughs> Contempt. Disdain, scorn, open disrespect. I, I love the face. I just, it says so much. It's one of those things that you do at a party where you write captions for pictures, right? So what would your caption be for the eye roll? Are you kidding me? I don't believe she said that. Yeah, you could spend half a day on that one. But this is a part, uh, particularly the problem of the strong, Paul says. Verse 3, <clears throat> the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. I mean, Paul knows exactly how this stuff plays out, friends. He could step into our congregation and he could rewrite Romans chapter 14, just change the illustrations. What Paul wants us to do is to get out of the judgment game. Because judgment destroys the oneness of the people of God, and when the oneness of the people of God is destroyed, then the mission is at risk. Right? That's the way it all stands together. Okay, so let's then talk about some rules of engagement. How are we to uh, live together where we have deeply held understandings of you know, how, how we ought to relate and how we ought to view the world. How do we, how do we engage together? <clears throat> and notice what often happens is we don't engage. Or, and here's a way you can do it, you can get a you can get a preacher who just tells everybody what to think. And then the people who disagree leave, and you've got unity, right? Except Paul never suggests that that's the way we should go. And I'm not going to be the preacher who does that anyway. You don't get true unity out of that. So what are the rules of engagement? Well, here's the basic one that Paul gives us. Accept one another. Receive one another. Or I like this uh, little sign I saw here. It's God's house. Welcome home. Welcome one another. Welcome. In fact, it's interesting how Paul discusses this. He starts out saying, accept one whose faith is weak, receive, welcome such a person, and, and then he says, verse 3, you know, don't 
Don't work with contempt. Don't work with judging. Why? For God has accepted them. God has welcomed both the weak and the strong. And so the instruction for us is to be welcoming because God is welcoming. And as he wraps up his discussion all the way down in chapter 15, he comes back to it again, verse 7, he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. So you've been accepted. doesn't matter whether you're weak or strong. doesn't matter if you've settled the political issues. You're accepted. You're welcomed by God and you're welcomed by Jesus himself. And what Paul is saying to us really is, Woe be to those who do not welcome those that God welcomes. You feel the power of what he's saying here? Receive one another. Well, yeah, we'll welcome them, but that'll give us a chance to straighten them out. Hey, friends. People can feel that. People can feel it. Let's not kid ourselves. Well, let me think a little bit further then about accepting one another and and why that's challenging for us. Why that's hard for me. A few additional guidelines here. Don't be afraid. See, sometimes when I encounter disputable issues, part of the reason I find that gut response in me is that I'm afraid. So let's get off the political stuff for a little bit here. Let's go back to something that (coughs) caused a lot of people fear in conservative circles back in, say, the uh, 70s, 80s, and more recently, too. But it was big back then. What about the explosive expansion of the charismatic movement? So I, I had some students at Trinity. I was teaching in the 80s out there. I had some students, good students, who came through with charismatic background, and uh, they, they would say to me things like, you know, I've been part of this, God just seems to be blessing, the, the church is exploding, and of course, it's subsequent to that that it's exploded all across Africa and South America. And, uh, and so I would... I would have this emotional thing going on of fear, right? I mean, maybe, maybe they're right. And I've been on a trajectory for 30, 40 years in churches that do not recognize the full breadth of the charismatic gifts 
And maybe I've not only been wrong on this, but I've been leading other people the wrong way. And by the way, when you look at some of the big-name evangelicals who have been the strongest on this over the years and still are, just say to yourself, there's, there's fear underneath that. Don't be afraid. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. So on difficult, disputable matters, the church does not stand or fall on your being right. See, we've had, we've had much too concern for being right over against being holy and over against being one together. Don't be afraid. God will take care of his church. He'll take care of you and me. And he'll take care, if the other brother or sister is wrong, he'll take care of that too. Seek to understand. One of my biggest concerns in, in examples I see of current disputes, disputable matters, one of the biggest concerns I have is that people don't take to under, time to understand what the issues are, and what the other person is saying. And part of that is because we live in a culture of sound bites and what I call bumper sticker theology. So sometimes if you use a phrase that people don't like, they think you know, they, they think that they know everything that you believe on the basis of a phrase. So seek to understand. Rather than comment, consider asking questions to elicit discussion. And not questions like, have you stopped beating your wife? So you can ask questions that are assaults, verbal assaults. But that doesn't grow understanding and it doesn't contribute to unity. Seek to understand. And often when we do that, we say to ourselves, oh, well, I, I at least I begin to comprehend why this person differs from me and maybe I see some places where we have agreements and before long, the conversation changes. Allow for uncertainty. This relates to the issue of fear. Many Christians do not like to acknowledge uncertainty because they're afraid that somehow that will become a slippery slope that will destroy their faith. I mean, can you feel that in, in yourself? See, I, I, I felt strong resistance in me back there in the 80s when some of my students would, <clears throat> would try to talk with me about the charismatic movement. 
because I felt like the uncertainty could be a, a slippery slope. Where, where do you stop, right? <clears throat> and I occasionally hear that even today from different people. If anything positive is said about the gifts of the Spirit, suddenly they jump to, oh, you're going to have people getting slain in the Spirit, or, right? That's that slippery slope argument, and it's, it's based on a difficulty of allowing for uncertainty. But these kinds of issues, friends, that divide us, they are wrapped in uncertainties. Now, if all that's true, then what it means is we have to allow for different conclusions. That's right. Paul allows for different conclusions in these two examples, doesn't he? He says, let the strong exercise their liberty, and the weak, let them have that more circumscribed behavior, and... And he says, that's, that's fine. I am convinced, he says, that nothing is unclean of itself. In itself, the issue is neutral. Which means that those people, the weak and the strong, Paul says, they can legitimately come to different conclusions. All right, well, let's try to apply this to a particular contemporary situation, right? I risk falling off the platform, being mobbed, uh, but let's, let's give it a try. So a question that came through in, in the box uh, a couple of weeks ago now, and I just wasn't ready to speak to it, but I want to pick it up. Here's the question that came. What is the church's position on critical race theory, CRT? I mentioned this in passing last week, but uh, this question came up. What's the church's position? Well, let's think about that in light of what Paul says. What he says about difficult issues, complex issues, issues where Christians differ. And here's the answer that I would give. I would say the church's position on critical race theory is that we have no position. We have no position. <clears throat> uh, I've done a lot of reading on this, but I think I've done enough <clears throat> to see that there are good people on both sides. Uh, I mean, you see that in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. Right, Todd? I mean, Southern Baptists can't make up their mind. They're trying to take a position on it, and they're jockeying back and forth, and they haven't been able to come to agreement as far as I can tell. So if the Southern Baptists largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. with 
some very bright people. Brighter than me. I mean, Todd's brighter than me, but, but some very bright people, and they can't agree. So why would we want to try to have a church position on this? But, but then here is something. I, I also got a letter this week, and I want to quote part of it to you because I, I think that this is very closely related to what we're talking about. And it, it involves this discussion that's going around, right? So here's part of the letter I got. person says, I am noticing that I have a lot of fear around even discussing issues like critical race theory with people because it is such a hot-button topic. I wish we could learn better how to discuss these issues but I don't even know where to begin. Do you think there is any hope of that at grace? I guess I fear where we might head if we don't learn or place value on these skills. Now, in light of Romans 14 15, I think that is very important for us, friends. Here, here is someone, and there's not just one person like this, I, I assure you. I know. But here's a person who says, I have fear, not about critical race theory, I have fear about how we can or how we are not able to have a healthy discussion. Now that, my friends, that's a problem. Brothers or sisters who don't feel that they can either express where they are or ask questions or raise topics because what? They're hot button topics and, well, let me say it this way, they're afraid they're going to get hammered. And they value peace in the church. But the peace on some of these topics is artificial if some people are very strong and they're so strong that other people feel they can't even raise a question. I always tried in my classes over uh, 40 years of teaching, I always tried in my classes to help my students understand that there were no questions off base. I mean, sometimes they were off base in the sense that they might not relate to the topic. But I didn't want to have an atmosphere that said, you can't ask certain questions or you cannot challenge the teacher. Because learning doesn't take place then. 
This is so important. I guess I fear where we might head if we don't learn or place value on these skills. It is skills, actually, learning to discuss difficult questions. It's skills. It's also attitudes. Right? It's the way we think about the other. Do you think there's any hope of that at Grace? (laughs) This person is saying, I don't think we have that yet, where we can have good, healthy discussions on issues that are disputable. Uh, Well, I don't know. I'm going to leave you to think about that. Because I think it's a very important question. How might we go about developing those skills and those attitudes? Well, those are the rules of engagement, except there's one that we finish with here, and uh, it's this. Paul says, let God be God. In numerous places he says, you know, don't get involved in judging one another, condemning one another. Here's the reality, friends. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. I don't need to fix you. I don't need to pronounce on your views of disputable matters. We could have a discussion, but I don't need to condemn or look down on you. Because Paul says... You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and I will stand there too. And that will be the perfect evaluation of everyone. I don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. And when we try to do it, we don't get it right because we don't see as God sees. So Paul says, Let that judging and evaluation on disputable matters, let that for God. And live your life for God. Live in faith and trust toward Him. All right. Well, that may generate some more letters this week. We'll see. In any case, thanks for coming. Let's pray together. Lord, we stand in the the good of your love. We stand in the good of the gospel, that you have accepted us into your kingdom, into your family, the eternal fellowship of love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, And you've not only accepted us, Lord, but you continue to accept us and welcome us in spite of our differences of opinion and one thing or another. Lord, uh, will you help us as a congregation to convey that sense of welcome to everyone who comes through our doors and to everyone who's currently here? May may none of us feel fear 
of how other people will respond to them. Lord, we want to live out your mission, and we understand that that mission involves our being one together in the love of Christ. So, will you help us this week and encourage us and strengthen us by your Spirit and, and God, open our eyes to who we are and how we're relating to other people and change our attitudes as, as that may be necessary. We desire to honor you in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.